0: In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Evan Yu about what is coming in Vue.js 3.0. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 129. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio podcast. I'm your host Adam Watham, and today it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show for I think maybe the third, maybe fourth time Evan Yu, the creator of VueJS. How's it going, man?
1: Hey, great. Is this already the the third or fourth?
0: It's at least the third cuz like we okay. actually did an episode before Vue 2 came out on like what okay. was going to be new in Vue 2. Right. Uh, and then we did the episode on like all the crazy scoped slot stuff. And okay. I think yep. Yep. I think those are the only two. Um, yeah. So, today I thought it would be awesome to talk about um, kind of like what's new in View 3, kind of like the sequel to uh, the first one we did. Because, I mean, as far as I understand, View 3 is, you know, uh, work on that is, you know, going smoothly and. F- getting closer and closer to a a release sometime soonish and we'll find that out hopefully in this conversation (laughs) Um, but I thought it'd be awesome to talk about uh, yeah what is happening with that and what people have to look forward to so I think maybe the best place to start would just be to talk a little bit about what sort of the original motivations for Vue 3 were at all like of course software changes and new versions of things come out um, but when was it I guess that you thought thought you have enough like paradigm changing ideas or breaking change ish ideas for view that it was time to start thinking about what like a new major version of Vue would look like.
1: Sure. Um, I think it was um, it's not like there isn't really a single moment where I felt like, Hey, it's time to start working on view three. Right. Um, I think as I worked on view to uh, maintain it over time, um, I think when we started working on View three, View two has been around for almost three years, so that's quite a long time. Um, and over time, you know, like a long-term project, there's always going to you, you're always going to occur some sort of technical debt, some design debt. Uh, we in fact have um, things that we carried over even from View one era where um, we hoped we could fix some of the stuff, but we couldn't, or uh, some of the design over time, we realized that this could be made cleaner uh, based on all the bugs that we ran into, that people reported. Um, and then, um, so these are some of the internal implementation stuff where uh, we felt like the current code base is just you know getting messier and messier, um, we were originally using Flow for uh, type checking the code base, but Facebook team really, the, the Flow team really wasn't doing a really great job at sort of keeping things stable, and we're always having a hard time upgrading Flow for every release. Uh, at the same time, we tried out TypeScript, and it's just you know much smoother sailing. Uh, the tooling is also much better, um, so, so we felt like it's probably a good time to consider at least switching to TypeScript. Um, and then I played around with some prototypes and figured hey like um maybe it's time to start thinking about the uh, the big overhaul right um the type system really is just a sort of um something that led to the whole exploration of what can we do differently compared to vue2 um but initially it was really just about making the code base more maintainable um, we thought about how we can restructure the codebase so that um, different parts of the framework can be more decoupled. It can be more self-contained. So uh, to make each part of the module sort of have a standalone API definition, have its own unit tests, have its own sort of design contracts and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it started out more like a refactoring attempt, which led to the revelation that maybe it's better to just rewrite <laughs> from the ground up. So this, this would
0: be like the second, at least second full rewrite, right? Like View 2 is a yes. full rewrite from View 1. Yes, yes. So um, it sounds, though, like what you're kind of talking about so far, like a refactoring doesn't necessarily require a new major version, right? As long as like the, yep. the yep. public API doesn't change in any sort of significant way. Um. So what are some of the things that like you did want to change that did sort of like necessitate a V3 from a like semantic versioning perspective, um, rather than just like, a. I feel like this is like a big new effort. I want to call this like new rewrite view three, or is it more about that? Um, I would say the goal wasn't really to push a new major version in the beginning.
1: Um, but as we did things, we realized if you're rewriting and, um, cause when you're rewriting the stuff, you realize that some of the, um, fundamental concepts that you can improve inside the framework. Um, so one of the, biggest, um, one of the biggest changes in Vue 3 is how the underlying render function, uh, vnode format, the data format for vnodes sort of changed. Um, but that doesn't really affect most of the template users at all. So um, although this is a major like breaking version, um, we try to limit these breaking changes sort of to these lower level internal stuff as much as we can. Uh, and if we do make breaking changes to these higher level APIs, we make sure we better have good reasons for those, which is why we sort of try to communicate everything through these RFCs ahead of time so people can sort of provide feedback on whether things are justified. So far, I think we've received overall pretty positive feedback, well, uh, with the exception for the function stuff that when it was originally when it was originally announced. Uh, But other than that, most of the breaking changes. although like, look at the list you see, like maybe there are probably a bit over 10 breaking changes, but a lot of them uh, from an average user's perspective, if you just use, use like the default setup with templates most of the time, you'll be looking at it, it'll be like, uh, well, this doesn't really seem to affect me too much. And we also try to propose changes that can be automatically upgraded most of the time. So um, this is a breaking change, but uh, from a an API design perspective, um, the, the breaking stuff really isn't that significant. It's not like an Angular one to Angular two. I would say the from a, an API perspective, the change is probably smaller than view one to view two.
0: Yeah, makes sense. So I think um, a couple of things I want to get into. First, I th- I would be curious to talk a little bit more about the change to um, the vnode data structure. Uh, Selfishly, because I do a lot of stuff with view render functions, so it's interesting sure, to me sure. to learn about like what some of the motivations for those changes are. Um. So yeah, why don't we dive into that a little bit? So what's changed in terms of how um, views vno data structure is sort of shaped when you're working directly at like the render function level with view for v three?
1: Sure. So the base change is that we are flattening the the vno props. So currently, if you're uh, like rendering a VNode yourself, you would have to have separate nested objects for ATTRs, props, uh, on listeners, and all that. Mm-hmm. But in Vue 3, we're just like, flattening everything. So I um, we'll also try to be smart so that if a prop that you sent to the VNode is actually settable on the DOM node, so we check to see if the property exists on the v- DOM, um, if it exists, we just set it as a prop. If it doesn't, we set it as an attribute. Okay. And that has proven to be working pretty well. So, um, so that kind of saves you the trouble of having to remember when to use props, when to use attributes, and then uh, any prop that starts with on is just treated as a listener automatically. Gotcha. Yeah. So you can just do on click,
0: then you pass the listener. So that's instead like of the having, convention now, instead of like an on yeah. key with an object that has yeah, like yeah, click yeah. or a mouse yeah. leave or any of that stuff. It's just yeah. more like, I guess more like what it's like in React or what it would yep. look like if you were just typing it like directly in regular exactly. HTML right so, on the moment.
1: Yeah, another side benefits of this is it makes our JSX transform so much easier. It's, it's really just literally translating everything into a flat object. It also makes the internal diffing a bit easier. As well, because now you don't have to iterate through all these nested objects. So there's less iteration going on. There's also um, there's also less memory usage because um, previously for a single vnode you might have three to four objects allocated, but now you have one flat object. So overall, it's just a a more efficient implementation underneath as well
0: and what what would you say like the main motivation for it was initially was it just kind of like looking at what you had and thinking like we got too clever with trying to organize this and <sighs> it's, it's just unnecessarily complicated
1: yeah it was sort of unnecessary because the original structure actually carried over from the um the v2 uh the snapdown library which the v2's algorithm was originally based upon Uh, and the, the, the design, the reasoning behind that design was, uh, so that you would have so-called modules and each module would handle a specific nested object inside Mm -hmm. your data. So you just
0: could like pass off chunks of that data structure instead of having to like group them yourself and at runtime or whatever. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But as we are, we were refactoring it, we realized like this isn't really necessary because um, we were basically rewriting every, everything from the ground up. And I realized you don't really have to do this if you just be a bit smarter.
0: What else has changed um, from like the render function perspective? I think I read that... Um, like, you don't pass, like, the H argument to the render functions anymore, and that's just now, like, a globally available Right, function. right, right.
1: H is now, sort of, imported globally. Yeah. So, um, the benefit, so, the reasoning for H to be, sort passed in in View 2 was, in fact, each component has a pre-bound H in Vue 2, so that when you, uh, say, render a node with a directive, or when you are trying to resolve things, resolve assets related to that specific component. You know which component to look at. But we realize you can sort of, because render functions are always synchronous, so you can just uh, assume the current rendering component. You are, uh, at the he- at the beginning of the render function, you pre-resolve all the things, um, and then because it's synchronous so you know which component is currently rendering so you can just resolve them ahead of time and then use them inside render
0: function got it yeah so tell me if i'm understanding that correctly but basically the way it was the reason it was the way it was before is you needed like the version of h being passed into the render function to be like sort of like a special version of h that was bound to some scope based on the component that you're rendering but then exactly. you realize after the fact that since like the way view is rendering these components internally, it always knows which component it's on. It can sort of like set up the world such that H is working in the right context before you render yeah. the function. Yeah. And then before you render the next function, you set things up. It kind of reminds me of um, I think it's kind of like how hooks work in react, right? Like.
1: A little bit, yeah. You have a, a bit a, about what it's yeah, being yeah.
0: rendering. So now stuff that looks global is like context aware, but only because yep. it's in control of what order things are happening anyways.
1: Yeah. So um, if you are using uh, playing manually writing render functions, we now expose two functions. Called, one is called resolve component and one is called resolve directive. Okay. Um, so you can use these to resolve... Uh, these string-registered global components or global directives, although if you are already using render functions, you probably would just import them <laughs> yourself. So this really is something that um, sort of ties into our new compiler that just generates smarter code uh, as well. Uh, another benefit of the um, making H global is that uh, you can sort of interchangeably You can easily extract part of your render function into standalone functions without having to always pass the h along. Yeah,
0: yeah, which has been a pain. Yeah,
1: yeah, it has been a major pain uh, of render functions in Vue too, and it also leads to our JSX implementation needs to sort of be smart, try and auto inject these h for you, and that has leads to another round of complexity. So overall, the render function refactor, it it's really just simplifying things. Uh, both for us and for users.
0: Got it, makes sense. So one other change that I know is coming, um, and this kind of leads to more of a general topic, but I guess I'm curious how much stuff, how many of the breaking changes in View 3 are um, just straight on breaks, like things that are gonna change the day that View 3 comes out versus View 2, and like this part of your View 2 code is gonna be not prepared, say. Um, I'm not trying to say that in any sort of negative context, but versus like the new slot API, for example, where like that has been introduced into Vue 2 and now everyone's encouraged to be using that new syntax. So when Vue 3 comes out, the old slot syntax will be deprecated, which is technically a breaking change. But as long as you've sort of kept up with Right, those sorts of changes you don't really mm-hmm. have to think about that on like the day that you upgrade to Vue three. So yeah, I guess I'm curious like how much stuff is uh, just deprecations versus things that are actually going to have to change uh, the second you try to do the upgrade.
1: Well, the thing is, we are not going to say just ship you a version of Vue three and you use it and everything just breaks, right? Um, so the yeah, plan yeah, is we are going to we're going to have to we're going to have a something called a compatibility build. Uh, So because a lot of of these changes that we're proposing can either be, are either like straightforward syntax changes, so we can just automatically run an upgrade for you using a code mod, or we can provide a runtime compatibility layer, which sort of handles the old API usage, intercepts that, gives you a warning saying, hey, like you are using the old syntax here and you should switch to the new syntax so that you can sort of slowly migrate. Uh, I think among all these changes, only maybe one or two of them are the ones that would h- require a hard, like manual upgrade. Yeah. So, um, so we're still we we still have to finalize all of these as we work on the compatibility build. But so far, like we, uh, if you read the RFCs, like every one of them, we sort of have an adoption strategy section where we talk about like how this feature specific change is supposed to uh, be upgraded to. So. Um, we try to think about that ahead of time when we introduce every single change.
0: Got it. So um, we talked about the render function stuff. I know about the slot stuff. I don't really want to get into the slot stuff because anyone who's been paying attention to changes in Vue 2 was probably already sort of seen that. And I think there's lots of other cool stuff to get into. Um, aside from like the composition API, which is like the really big new thing that I think we can spend like most of the rest of the conversation on, um, what... Other changes are coming in Vue uh, 3 that you think are uh, particularly exciting?
1: So, um, in fact, a lot of the changes, um, so I would say it's exciting for me as as the author because we have a vastly improved internal architecture that opens up a lot of new possibilities. We have greatly improved the performance. That's probably the most exciting part for me, but uh, for end users, it's... Uh, it's just transparent, right? Uh, you don't really need to do any work to get that nice. performance. Um, so the performance part, really, the new compiler, our compiler is now much smarter, have, have full source map support, um, gives a lot of uh, inline, like sort of, when you have syntax errors, we'll just try to give you information right there as you compile it. Uh, so we're hoping that this could just like sort of serve as the new infrastructure for our template layer. Uh, a lot of the internal parts like parser, trans- uh, the, the template plugging pipeline, and the temp code gen, all of these can sort of expose internal APIs so that can be directly used by third party tooling. Um, and then the compiler generates much, much smarter code so that um, it only imports the features you've used on demand. For example, if you use vModel, uh, then it imports vModel v code on demand. If you use Keep Alive or Transition, it then it imports them. But if you don't use those, uh, those can be tree shaken. So um, the very, very bearable application you view 3 probably is like 10KB GZIP. Um, so that's like less than half the size of what you have today. Um, and then performance-wise, just raw vir- virtual up- updating performance is already... Significantly faster in the Vue 2, then uh, in Vue 3, the compiler generates a sort of a more optimized VDOM. It's hard to explain in a podcast with words, but uh, just think about how uh, when you have a virtual DOM uh, temp- template, a, a virtual DOM structure, um, the traditional diffing algorithm is sort of brute force in that you have to fully diff the two trees. Uh, you have to walk the two trees in full in order to figure out what nodes have changed, sure. what branches have changed. Mm-hmm. Right, so that's sort of brute force. So, but if you look at a template, uh, templates are, uh, because they are constraining in some way, but they also sort of, because they are, they constrain what you can express. We can, uh, the compiler can make more assumptions about what you mean. Right, we know that when you write a div tag with three spans in it they are never gonna the order is never gonna change sure. so what's the point of comparing the two lists in the virtual DOM diffing algorithm right so uh so we look at the the template and how we can extract useful information from it and we realize that um the only cases where the node structure can can actually change is when there is v like structural directives like v-if or v4 mm-hmm. so um if we sort of partition your template Using V if and V 4 these these structural directives as boundaries, you partition them th- into these subblocks. Within each subblock, you will have a completely static node structure, right? So, in fact, we only need to walk these. Um, the only tree we need to walk should be these sort of structural directive tree,
0: okay. instead of
1: the whole virtual DOM tree.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Right. So that's one simplification. The other is uh, within each of these blocks. Um, a lot of nodes could be static. They they don't even need to yeah. be touched. Sure, just like an h1
0: right? with a fixed piece right? of text. That's exactly. just Exactly. Yeah. So
1: imagine you have a big you have a partition block inside which there is only one single dynamic text binding. So we generate a render function that as you render this block, this node gets tracked as the only dynamic node of this current block. Yeah. So when we are trying to update this block, the only thing we do is just check whether that piece of text has changed instead of walking all the nodes in the block. Um, and We go a step further by detecting that, oh, this node only has a dynamic class binding. Oh, this node only has text binding. Oh, this node only has style binding, right? So um, we have dedicated pa- fast paths for some of these common cases. So um, instead of when you diffing a node, instead of looping through uh, iterating through the props object, then iterating the old props object to figure out if there's a new one added or new one removed, we can skip out of that we know this node only the only thing we need to do is update its class name and that's it
0: yeah interesting so, so yeah that, what, what's cool about that i think um that maybe it's not obvious to a lot of people is like this is one place where view using templates is like a very significant advantage in terms of what you can do performance-wise exactly. versus like anything that just uses a render function, like even a view render function yep. can't take advantage of this stuff, right? Because like you have Correct. no way of knowing what the hell I'm doing Correct. in there. But because exactly. the template is so static, there's all these performance optimizations that you can do.
1: Exactly, right? So um, so technically you can do some of the similar stuff with say the JSX plugin,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: JSX is fundamentally still JavaScript. So there are so many places you have to bail out. It just ends up not on the same level. There's like very very few things you can do uh, when you're trying to analyze JSX because whenever you get a dynamic expression, you basically have to bail out. Yeah. Uh, you don't know what's happening inside of it, right? Um, so, for example, in comparison, React has a uh, static hoisting or a constant hoisting plugin. Um, it can provide some of the same benefits, but not even close. And even that, um, people don't. Can't use it by default because there are cases where it will like hoist things too aggressively and cause your stuff to work incorrectly. Um, but in templates, you don't have these problems at all.
0: Yeah, that's pretty exciting, actually. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a that to me is a really good argument for like templates existing. Like, I think like the stance with Vue has always been that like templates are are so much easier for people to learn coming from different. Uh, areas of expertise, right? Like a designer is going to have so much easier of a time with Vue than React most likely if they know HTML but they don't know JavaScript because, yeah, you have an if statement when you want to conditionally show something, not like nested, fancy, ternary crap to try Uh, (laughs) and control where things are rendered. And And the thing is, I think the the fundamental
1: issue with, say, JSX or JavaScript is uh, when engineers work on those they intrinsically, because of the freedom they get, they intrinsically write things uh, in a sort of more code-like fashion. Mm-hmm. So um, they don't, it, it's hard for them to say, like stick to this sort of more markup-like mindset. Yeah. But once they deviate away from that, the code they you end up actually writing becomes so much harder for designers to read because yeah. all of these javascript stuff just leaks, sinks in from everywhere.
0: Yeah, and I think now that you can say, like, hey, there's, like, a significant performance improvement available if you use templates, that's, like, a really good um, a really good justification for it if both options are available. Because I can see the argument of, like, wanting to just be consistent everywhere, right? Like, Vue gives you render functions as sort of an escape hatch when you need to do stuff that's, like, very tricky Dynamic. or sort of low yep. level right and i could yeah. see how some people like i've even felt this myself sometimes i so just wanted to be like well why don't i just use jsx and view all the time so at least like i'm always doing things the same way um so it's nice to have like a good reason to not do things that way that's not just based yeah. on oh well this will be harder for designers it's like there's a technical benefit now which is kind of cool
1: yeah and and the difference is I just want to add, like the the gain is not even trivial. Like um, in the benchmark, I, I don't want to like go too too much details into the benchmark because we just primarily use it to sort of validate the design ourselves. Sure. But like just comparing view one or view two, there's a uh, uh, view two and view three compiling from the same template, you see at least like hundred twenty percent increase in terms of raw reconciliation time, and that puts its, puts view three's raw like updating performance ahead of most of the competitors based on our benchmarks. But I mean, this is a special, like a specific synthetic benchmark, but like at least in this benchmark, we among every other framework we've tested, Vue 3 is the fastest.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. And I think like Vue 3 was already, or Vue 2 was the fastest well, I don't know if it was faster than Svelte before. Um, Not really. Like that <laughs> right. In some situations, at least, it seems like it might be now. Yeah. Uh, but I know I remember seeing benchmarks in Vue 2 that still put Vue ahead of React already, right, in a lot of ways. Yeah, so, yep. um, yeah, so I did see you tweet about that thing, about like the performance of, of Vue 3 being faster than Svelte. What's What's the latest on that?
1: Well, um. so Svelte is, in fact, another good example of how you can leverage templates to do more performing oriented optimizations because Svelte compiles template into these imperative operations where like the code you generate is like literally just like create elements, append elements, update elements and all that. Um, so, but the, the downside of that is you sort of give up on this virtual DOM layer where you can actually drop down to render functions and
0: yeah, that makes sense. So there's no way to do that at all.
1: Exactly. Stealth, right? So you lose that completely in Svelte. So V3 is really trying to strike the, we want to get the best of both worlds, right? We are using templates, so we should be performing, but we also want to give people the ability to use random functions when they want to. So that's sort of the, the idea behind the whole, um, it, it's trying to get the balance where you kind of give people what they need on both sides.
0: Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is DigitalOcean. So, DigitalOcean is a simple, developer-friendly cloud platform optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. Uh, I've personally been a customer of DigitalOcean for about five years, and I use them to host all of my server-side projects, like my custom course platform, for example, which is built with Laravel. A lot of the guests that I've had on the show in the past are DigitalOcean. Customers as well. Uh, for example, Taylor Otwell, the creator of Laravel, he uses DigitalOcean to host envoyer and Laravel Forge. And Jeffrey Way actually uses DigitalOcean to host Laracast as well. Uh, one of DigitalOcean's newest features that I'm personally really excited about is managed databases, uh, which lets you spin up a completely managed database server so you don't have to worry about anything like backups, uh, managing read only replicas, or just general server maintenance. Now, DigitalOcean is already an extremely affordable service. You can spin up a server for as little as $5 a month, but they've been kind enough to offer a free $50 credit to Full Stack Radio listeners. So head over to do.co slash fullstack, all one word, to claim your $50 credit. And thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. Okay, so I think like the big thing that I think uh, we can spend the rest of this conversation on is um, like the View Composition API. So I guess maybe maybe just before we get into that, I know before this was introduced, um, there was a lot of work being put into like a class-based API yep. uh, for View 3. Um, yep. And that has since been just kind of canceled. Um, and replaced a, not maybe not replaced, but like it was kind of canceled around the same time that the composition API came out. It felt like mm-hmm. um, so yeah. so what were the challenges I guess with the class based API um, and I guess maybe even like what problems were you we even trying to solve with the class based API yep uh, originally
1: yeah so the first um, one of the first reasons uh, of int- thinking about class API at all is better typescript support um, because. We originally, like a lot of other people, were under the impression that in order to provide better TS support, you sort of have to go with classes because that's what a lot of the type inference is built around. Um, and turns out like uh, also like we wanted to sort of align better with, um, with JavaScript native syntax because um, class has being part of the language now. Uh, and uh View's current object based syntax, the primary complaints that we 've hearing people talk about is that the the magical this uh doesn 't always make sense for example um like when you are when you are nested inside a method, technically this should be referring to this method's object instead of the whole instance, but somehow view just magically make everything work
0: sure. yeah yeah yeah
1: um it's it's interesting because like when you first learn about the API, it sort of just makes sense, right? Like yeah, sure, this that's points to that's conform. been my
0: experience. Like the this yeah. in view at first, it seems intuitive and everything works perfectly fine. But then then eventually you get to a point where you want to do something that's kind of weird, and you expect this to do something in a certain way, and it doesn't. And that's when it sort of dawns on you, like wait. This whole time like this this thing has been like a very magical <laughs> yeah. version. Even though yeah. it's like 99% intuitive, um, once once you start coloring outside the line, sometimes it could be it can throw you for a loop a little bit.
1: Yeah. And it sort of poses an interesting challenge when it comes to type inference because because this is pointing to some magical instance, and we somehow have to make TypeScript realize it's actually pointing to that instead of the methods object. We, um, we managed to do that in Vue 2, actually, but it took a lot of effort to get things right. And still, in a lot of cases, it sort of breaks down. People are like, um, it just is not working perfectly with TypeScript. And um, we're also, uh, one of the reasons to switch TypeScript was because we were sort of maintaining our source code and the type definition sep- completely separately. So there's a lot of sort of friction. Every time we make a change internally or make an API update, we have to th- remember to update the type definition. So um, so we, we thought, oh, maybe switching to classes would uh, help us with that. Um, and we were looking at how, um, and, and we also saw that uh, Ember was moving to native classes. Uh, Glimmer is like actually just using TypeScript classes. Uh, with decorators. Angular is in classes with decorators. Aurelia is using classes. So we thought, well, that looks like the way to go. Um, so we tried to sort of mode. We, we also already have the, uh, the view class component library that a lot of TypeScript users use with Vue 2. Um, so we looked into that. And um, and the, the original class API proposal was loosely based on the, uh, the View TypeScript component library. But but one of the interesting things, challenges in Vue is, unlike Angular, which sort of essentially forces their users to use TypeScript, we have a large group of users who just probably will never get into TypeScript. We also have some users who desperately want to use Vue with TypeScript. Right? It's an interesting challenge. So how do you position the framework and design an API that would work for both JavaScript and TypeScript, because we don't want our say uh, plain JavaScript users to to be using object API and TypeScript users to be using class API, so the two code base, depending on your language choice, the way you're using Vue just ends up completely looking completely different, right? Uh, so that sort of fragment just like fragments the um, the, the community. So um, So one of the design challenges was how do you design a class API that works that looks similar in both um, JavaScript and TypeScript? And turns out to that's hard. Uh, If you want to do that, the thing is native JavaScript classes aren't really that powerful. Uh, Class fields is still sort of not really finalized. Decorators not finalized. Private fields not finalized. Uh, so just there's a lot of things in flux for native JavaScript class syntax, but without these, it, the class itself is really not that useful, right? So, which is why when you use TypeScript classes, you almost always use decorators and all those stuff. Yeah, that these comes like TypeScript
0: specific features that yeah. aren't just like a syntactic layer on top of JavaScript, really.
1: Well, I mean, decorators is like a stage three, but uh, not re- is it? I think it's still like at least when we designed it it's still like stage 2 and it has gone through like 3 to 4 major overhauls uh every time it tries to advance to stage 3 people are just like "Nah, this like there's there are problems with these uh and the today the the proposal is like completely different from how TS sort of implemented originally so TS's current implementation of decorators is based on a very very old draft of the proposal yeah um so, um uh, for us, it just feels a lot very risky to sort of build on top of this things that may just change when it finally lands.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. And so, then there are practical yeah, sorry, reasons.
1: There are practical reasons as well. So as we design it, there are some few specific things like how we declare props, right? Um, I wouldn't go dig too deep into that, but essentially, without decorators you basically don't have an elegant way to sort of do that, but with decorators, you're essentially putting yourself into this risky spot where it may just end up working completely differently as you expected.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then uh, we saw hooks. Uh, I was looking into hooks, and I was thinking about some of the uh, interesting properties, the problems that solve majorly, uh, mainly in the uh, code reuse and composition part. right? So I was looking at the class API, and I was asking myself, like, how? What would you do to achieve sort of the same functionality in classes? And turns out you can't really get the same level of flexibility. Like, you can use mixins, but mixins has its own bunch of problems, right? So, in terms in terms of uh, reusing logic, organizing, composing logic, class API provides nothing over the object api so it's like a pure syntactical change
0: yeah like your only option for kind of reusable behaviors is like scoped slots really right and doing really clever things with those like people were doing with render props um, exactly so on the on
1: the uh, on the javascript side like class api isn't something that's inherently superior than the object syntax
0: Mm -hmm. so I think that's probably a good time to jump into like the composition API then. So sure. I think we should start basically from nothing because I think uh, there's a lot of people who have been following it closely, I'm sure, but a lot of people who, who also haven't. Um, yeah. So you mentioned briefly that um, you first kind of got the idea for this after seeing what was sort of happening with like with hooks in, uh, in the React world. So um, do you mind just talking a little bit about the sort of origins of uh, the composition API in view, what sort of problems you were trying to solve, and then we could sort of dive into some of the different features that are exposed by it in some more detail.
1: Sure. Um, so when I first saw hooks, i really I really didn't think about how like it can translate to into something in view. I was just trying so the first thing I did was in fact, replicate the exact API in view. So, I published a library called View Hooks maybe just a couple hours uh, or a few (laughs) days after they announced it Uh, because it really isn't something that's technically complex to do. Um, But as I implemented it, uh, I realized, oh, there's some interesting characteristics here. Um, So, just to know, like View Composition API, so as we, the, the final form of it is now really different from React Hooks. Yeah. Because React Hooks are sort of, they are invoked on every render. Yep. Uh, and as I was implementing view hooks, I sort of run into all of these restrictions or uh, caveats that comes with this approach. Yeah. And but I really liked the way how you can uh, how it's really free form in how you organize your logic. Uh, It's just like writing normal JavaScript. And you can move things around. You can organize them into functions. You can extract this function out. You can just put them into a separate file and reuse it across components. Uh, And we realized this is a composition capability that sort of solves a lot of the problems in existing patterns. Logic reuse has always been a a thing uh, when you're writing a big application or reusable libraries. and in the past, we really don't have a perfect answer to it. Uh, obviously, we have mixins, but mixins have namespace clashing. When you have a lot of them, you really don't know which mixing injected which property. And then we have. Um, so it, it's funny because, like, looking at the history of how React sort of evolved, they have mixins in the way back as well. Uh, and then they. There was an article called Mixings are Dead, long live high order components, and everyone was on high order components. And then there came render props, and everyone was on render props. Um, so render props is the rough equivalent of scope slots in Vue. Um, so you can do a lot of the scope slots. Uh, you can use scope slots to encapsulate logic inside component instances, and it works pretty well. Like The only downside is that uh, you are using a component instance just for holding some stateful logic.
0: Yeah, and it might not render any of its own template at all. Exactly. It still takes up a place in like the tree.
1: Yeah, so it's renderless, but it holds up some space and it has has to, so component instances are obviously much more expensive than just a normal vNode. Yeah. Because associated with it, you have state, you have all the bookkeeping, you have to set up its render loop and all that. So there's a lot of more extra work. And when you sort of use a lot of them, it sort of compounds across your application. So there is a little bit of performance concern in that. But with Composition API, uh, you can extract the same type of logic that you tradi- uh, previously do in renderless components, and then now they just become pure uh, JavaScript inside a function. You call it, it give, returns some state back, and you use that state inside your host applic- uh, host component. So there's no overhead in terms of setting up an extra instance just for state. The state is just living there. Um, so that's that really solves almost all of the issues that we've seen like namespacing, uh, extra component instances and in terms of uh, which mixing or which comp- component injected which property. <laughs> so in with the composition API it's all become this all becomes explicit because they are just inside javascript and you can rename all these variables as you wish. Um, And and there's also more flexibility in that you can actually take the return state from one composition function and then pipe it into another one. So cross-module state communication also becomes easier. Um, So overall, uh, we feel like it it actually addresses a real problem. Yeah. if you are trying to extract reusable logic and reuse it across components, this is so far the best way that we have found.
0: Yeah. So I think maybe like a good place to, before we like get too deep, um, I think it would probably be good to maybe talk a little bit about like what it actually looks like in terms of like real code. Obviously podcast is not the ideal place to it, <laughs> but that's, yeah. that's the format yeah. that we have. Um, sure. So yeah. What, uh, what do you think of the best way to uh, sort of introduce it is in terms of like a, trying to get people to see in their head like what a component might look like if it's using the composition API
1: sure so uh, it's it's interesting because I was uh, looking at the uh, my hooks implementation I was like if we were to do this in a more idiomatic view way what would it look like and I realize um, currently a lot of this the reactivity in view like you have an object you mutate it and things automatically happen is bound to components. right? All the magic almost all happens on this. So you can't really, um, in the past, there really isn't a simple way to say, I want this standalone reactive object without a component instance. Uh, we introduced a new API called view.observable in 2.6, which does exactly that. And that's sort of the precursor. I actually introduced that when I was thinking on this whole idea. Um, so. Now that if you can sort of explicitly create a reactive object on your own, let's call this function reactive, right? So if you pass an object to this reactive function, it gives you back the same object except it becomes reactive. And then how would you react to the changes happening to this object? So we give you another function called watch. So when you call watch and give this watch an inner callback, And inside this watch callback, similar to how you do a... This is a bit different from the the component watch because inside the watch callback, you can just directly say console.lock state.message, something like that, right? So this will be executed immediately. And it remembers that you used state.message as a dependency. So once you've done this, you mutate state.message, this function will get run again. So this is like the most most fundamental basic API uh, so if you think about this, this really isn't about composition at all it's just like exposing view internals as standalone usable functions because these are the exact functions view is using internally to build this component API that you're using right? so I realized uh. This sounds like a whole new set of APIs, but in fact, implementation-wise, we're not doing anything new. We are just exposing a lot of view internals as uh, standalone functions that you can import and use. Right? So you, now we have reactive, we have watch, we can expose computed as a function too. Computed would just take a computed getter. So you return some value from within that function. And what you get back, so here we come into an interesting problem. If a computer property returns a number, a primitive value, uh, how would you sort of use it as a standalone thing? Because if you just get a number, it's not going to be reactive, right? There's no way to sort of track it. Okay. Um, So this is why we introduced the concept of a ref. So think of it as a reference to a primitive value. So it wraps that value in an object. So you access the value as like ref dot value. And when the computer property changes, it updates that dot value. So you can read it uh, again to get the latest value. So this dot value is also reactive. So you can track it. You can watch it. Um, so, um, so now we have reactive ref watch computed. All of these are still within completely within the reactivity uh, so in fact, yeah. if you look at the, the way Vue 3 is structured, we have a package called Vue slash reactivity yep. and exposes these APIs. It can be used standalone. Uh, so technically, you can use this library without even pulling in Vue at all. Okay, interesting. So it becomes a bit more general purpose. Um, so composition API is essentially reactivity API plus the ability to register lifecycle hooks. Yeah. Using globally imported functions. So this is a, this is the part where it gets a bit like React hooks where um, you have this unmounted function. Yeah. You pass it a callback and you register this callback as a lifecycle hook to the current running component. Right? So it's sort of a little magical in sure. that sense. Um, but but the nice thing about this is um, you can allow any component, uh, you can allow any arbitrary function to hook into the lifecycle of a component without explicitly requiring a this context.
0: Okay, can you give me an example of what you mean by that?
1: Um, so imagine you are writing a function to extract the functionality of, um, say, tracking the mouse position on the screen. Okay. Um. So you can have a standalone function inside the function you would call unmounted callback window event listener, then un- unmounted callback window dot remove event listener. Got it. Right. There's no this involved, <coughs> and um, and this function can be reused across any number of component instances.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So. I think um, something to, to talk about quickly here is like we kind of skipped over it a little bit, but like what if what a view component might look like now using the composition API is like in your script tag instead of doing like your export default data methods props. Well, I mean some of that stuff I think is still there, right? But. Well, everything is
1: still there. <laughs> Nothing is okay, removed. Okay, so you
0: can actually, can yeah. you can you mix and match that stuff? Yes,
1: you can. The best part is, uh, so in order to use Composition API, right, uh, so you can call these all of these stuff sort of standalone. The Reactivity API can be used standalone, but in order to use it inside component, uh, you do export default with an object, then with a new hook called setup,
0: Okay. And this is similar so, to like what you had before where like mounted or created. Yeah, like You yeah, think yeah. of setup as just like another lifecycle hook sort of.
1: Yeah. It's like the highest priority lifecycle hook. It's like called the first of the first thing Got after it. component is instantiated. So um, inside the setup, you can use all these composition APIs. You can create reactive state because this setup function is called for per instance. So all the state you set up inside of it is per instance as well. Mm -hmm. Um, You can register lifecycle hooks inside the setup as well. You can extract arbitrary logic into external functions and call it inside setup. That's how composition happens. Yep. And finally, the setup function returns all the properties that you want to expose to the template.
0: Yeah. So it basically, returns like like a scope object for the the template. Yeah, it's a render context. Yeah. yeah,
1: everything you return from setup it now gets exposed to your template. And yeah. You can, yeah,
0: I actually really like that part of it because I feel like um, I feel like there's been situations in Vue in the past where like I wanted to be able to use something in a template that like wasn't. That didn't really belong in like a, a regular kind of view bucket in a component you know what i mean yep. and yep. i i always felt like weird about doing it and and it probably is weird to do like say you want to use like a low dash in your template for some reason to do something mm-hmm. you'd always have to put like low dash on like the data property or something and that always felt right. like kind of weird because it's like now view is like watching for like uh changes to lodash, which is never gonna happen it was kind of like this signal like you're doing something stupid which probably it still is stupid but (laughs) i like that with like this new syntax i can just like stick anything in this object and it's going to be available in the template like the template doesn't care that it's a method or that it's an object or that it's a data property or a computed property it's just like these are the 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 named pieces of anything that will exist there now which feels simpler in a lot of ways
1: so um, now the, the, um, so I want to mention like, how you can use it alongside other options, right? Okay. Um, so you can use setup. Just, you can add it to an existing component using the 2.x API, and it'll just work because it's sort of invoked ahead of everything else. So inside all the other options, you will have access to the thing stuff uh, to all the properties returned by setup on this. But not vice versa, right so inside setup you won't get any access to this at all
0: Oh interesting the, so if if, yeah. I, if I stick if I do like const count equals or you know const foo equals reactive whatever return object with foo now in like my regular mounted lifecycle hook, I can say like this dot foo yep, so this exactly. is kind of like merged with that return object for exactly inside.
1: exactly. So uh, what I the reason so what I think a very legit use case for this sort of mixed usage is um, you don't necessarily have to rewrite all your existing components using composition API uh, if it's already working right it doesn't really make much sense but uh, say if we hope what I hope is like future in the future a lot of these third party libraries especially logical utility libraries can be just exposed as a function.
0: It's and then you, and set up.
1: Yeah, you call it, you you pass it some arguments, you call it, you get back some state inside your setup function, and then you return it, it gets merged into your component, and then you can use it, right? But it doesn't sort of interfere with your local component yeah, logic. Yeah,
0: that's nice. So I could totally see how that would be like, a, basically a very clean refactor from like a mix in. Um, yeah, where instead exactly. of doing like, okay, here's this mix-in that I got from this library, maybe the new version of the library exposes um, a function that's meant to be called in setup. Now, setup just basically becomes like a, li- a, a list of calls that were originally mix-ins maybe, but now you have like explicit yep. control over the naming, and exactly. namespace collisions and all that stuff.
1: Exactly. Also, it'll read a lot nicer because when you read your setup function, you'll be like, use this feature, use that feature, mm-hmm. and I get these back. Now just expose all of these. Right. So yeah. it, it becomes a bit more self-descriptive in what the component is trying to do.
0: Yeah, very nice. Uh, and another
1: good example is, uh, for example, integration with RxJS. Uh, in the past, it has been sort of, uh, we're doing some sort of hacks, like injecting these observables into your templates. Now, because we have this ref concept, so you can say, uh, use observable, then you pass it an arbitrary RxJS stream and it returns you a normal view ref. Then you expose that ref to your template. And this use observable function internally handles subscribing to the RxJS stream, taking the latest value, and setting it to the ref. So it just performed this simple connection task. But now like, it just works smoothly inside your template.
0: Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Cloudinary. So if I had to describe Cloudinary myself, it's basically just the best way to store and serve images that I've ever seen. In the past, I used to use generic storage services like Amazon S3 to store and serve images, uh, but after switching to Cloudinary, I genuinely cannot believe I ever did this stuff any other way. Uh, so here's one example of how Cloudinary has made my life easier. Uh, so you probably know that typically images are the heaviest resource your users have to download when they visit your site right usually way more than your javascript or css so in the past i would spend a lot of time tweaking settings and tools like image alpha and image optim to try and optimize my image files so they weren't as large Uh, with cloudinary i can just upload the full resolution file without even really thinking about it and then by just adding a parameter to the image url that i get back uh, when i go to serve it on my site cloudinary will automatically optimize that image as best as it can usually resulting in file sizes that are actually lower than what I was seeing when trying to optimize the images by hand. Uh, This is even more useful for like user uploaded images because instead of trying to do some fancy automatic image optimization in a background job on my own server or something, I can just send those images directly to Cloudinary from the browser, request the optimized version back by adding that URL parameter, and bam, I've got an optimized image at a really small file size. Uh, So there's an enormous amount of other cool stuff that you can do through the URL-based API. That's really just scratching the surface, but you can do stuff like request images at different sizes so you can serve smaller images on mobile devices so you're not wasting bandwidth. Uh, You can crop images to different dimensions. You can crop images using face detection, so just crop to the faces in an image. Uh, You can automatically add watermarks or text overlays or tons of different effects and stuff like that. It's a seriously impressive service. So Cloudinary has an amazing free plan where you can store 300,000 images and videos. Yeah, did I mention you can do all this crazy stuff, not just with images, but also with videos too. Uh, You get 10 gigabytes of storage and 20 gigabytes of monthly bandwidth on this free plan. Uh, so if you're not already using them, definitely head over to Cloudinary.com and check it out. It really is one of my absolute favorite services that I use on my own projects. Thanks a ton to Cloudinary for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting to maybe talk about refs and in, in the Composition API a little bit because... Um, I have some questions about it personally. So, sure. The one thing that I noticed first when I was like kind of learning about the composition API after learning about hooks in React was that refs in Vue's composition API are not really like refs in React. Like no, it's, in React um, like a ref different. is Changing a ref does not trigger a re render or anything like that, but in view, a ref is reactive. So if I go ref dot, is it, what is it, ref dot value that you yeah. mutate? Yeah. So if I say ref yep. dot value equals whatever um, in mm-hmm. React, that gets ignored, um, which yep. I don't know. I guess that's good in some ways <laughs> if you have, what, if for what you're doing, but in view, yeah. it, it triggers a re render, just like changing like, a data property would, which yep. I think leads to like some questions around like, why do you need both refs and like reactive? Yep. And I actually saw yep. a blog post recently where someone was sort of talking about how so far in their explorations with view three or the view composition API, mm-hmm. like they haven't really felt the need to use reactive as long as you don't mind calling like dot value, um, value even for object yep. stuff. Yep. So is there like a r- real reason that you actually need both or, um, if you're fine with calling that value, is it totally fine to just use refs for everything?
1: It's, yeah. Like, technically, you can use ref for everything. But but I would look at this from, say, if you're writing normal JavaScript code, um, sometimes you would declare a standalone variable. Sometimes you would declare an object, <laughs> right? It's same like that. So, um, for example, you're tracking the mouse position. You can write a logic as, as let x equals zero, let y equals zero. Yeah. Or you can say const position equals object x0, zero, y0. Zero. Yeah. Both are sort of valid styles, but... Um, so this is translates directly to whether to use a ref, where x and y both being single just refs, or you can have a position object, which is a reactive object containing x and y.
0: So what would the difference be versus having a ref that was an object that had x and y, like... Is, is right. the difference that like saying ref.value.x equals whatever doesn't trigger a re-render or is it, it like deep? It impressive? works the
1: same way. It does work the same way. So in fact, uh, when you put an object inside a ref, you get a side advantage of you will be able to replace the object entirely with, mm-hmm. a, with a new object. So in some, in some cases, you might actually want to do that. Um, the primary reason for providing reactive is uh, in a lot of in a lot of simple cases where you're not really trying to split logic, uh, it's still it's still nice to just have a local reactive object, mm-hmm. and it's sort of like the data that you're used to. Yeah. Um, so the syntax becomes nicer, right? Because a lot of times when you have to remember writing dot value all the time, and uh, it could be a bit verbose. Yeah. In cases, and also um, remembering something is a ref sort of. Um, it's better to to use the full ref style when you have, say, when you're using TypeScript, which it just you have that type of information. It tells you, hey, this is a ref. Or uh, later on, we will provide a linter rule that sort of warns you if you're using a ref, uh, say like your a plus b where a and b are refs, which doesn't make sense.
0: Sure. Yeah, makes sense. So, am I right in thinking that like you personally have like an affinity for the reactive like versus a ref like? If you can use Reactive, you prefer to use Reactive?
1: Um, Not really. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I would probably use it very situationally. Just like in JavaScript, um, our direct intuition is like, you always declare, like, let X equals zero, let Y equals zero. Mm -hmm. So in that case, uh, ref is more direct. But it's interesting because... um, (laughs) When I'm when I'm extracting like reusable logic, when I'm writing what we call a composition function, a function that like extracts and encapsulates some lo- stateful logic, I prefer to use refs inside because I know like where I'm trying to be as explicit a po- as possible, and I'm going to return these refs so that they can be passed around. They can be uh, if you, you you return an object containing refs, they can be destructured. But they still retain reactivity. Yep. But if you return a reactive object and it gets destructured, the reactivity is the the reactivity connection is lost because uh, once you destructured, what you were what you are holding is just a uh, directive. Just a direct reference to the
0: value. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. So you no longer have that reactivity connection. So um, this is why inside composition functions, I almost always prefer to use refs. But if I'm writing say a simple demo component, I mean reactive is probably going to be more straightforward. Got it. Yeah. So the thing is, yeah, we talked about this in the uh in the RFC because we we feel like yeah, this is a question that comes up a lot and we kind of want to let the the community sort of use it more in the wild and we want to also get people's input and opinions on which they feel more natural which fits their use cases more and like we also want to figure out uh discover more cases where you know say using refs actually causing confusions or using reactive leads to problems. So uh we feel like at this stage we don't want to give you a definitive uh
0: sort of like guideline saying like or, yeah, yeah like this
1: is what you should use. We feel like we are still open to like let the community give us yeah. more feedback. Yeah
0: isn't? it makes sense. Yeah. For sure. Yeah it's tricky, right? Because like there's a strong argument to be made I guess for like doing every doing something the same way all the time. So like if you only use refs then you know you're always calling dot value. You never you never have to guess whether this one came from like a reactive source or a ref source. But at the same time it's also like when you compare that experience to Vue 2, like you never had to do that in Vue 2 and now it's like we're making people pay this penalty of like making things a little bit more verbose exactly. and that's kind of like uh, I feel kind of bad about making the experience ever feel grosser in any way. Right. So it's hard. Um, So one thing that I ran into when I was playing with the composition API and I'm curious to learn, is this like, is this by design or maybe I found a bug or something is when I was playing with like the watch function, I noticed that if I try to like in my watch function, update some reactive state um, based on like some other reactive state, it actually caused like an infinite loop because it seemed like the watch function yeah. noticed that like something got touched and yep. it just triggered itself to go on and on and on forever. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. Is that like, by design, like is that something people should be like understanding about how like yeah, the watch totally. it works? Yeah, um,
1: totally. So, so the watch right now, because like if you, there are two ways of using the new watch function. One is you pass it a single function, which Collects dependency and gets rerun automatically. Yeah. And then another one is um, similar to Vue two, where you pass it a getter that return like watch returns the value you actually want to watch, and then you have a callback, right? Yeah. So the the definition of what watch should do is it should perform side. Of, it's intended to perform side effects. If you have state that needs to be updated based on other state, you should use a computed property because that's the declarative way
0: Sure. Yep,
1: yep, of yep. specifying the relationship between state. Yep. Right? If you want to use derived state, you always use computed. Watch should be limited to side effects. For example, logging something to the console is a side effect. Yep. Uh, sending an AT- HTTP request is a side effect. Or you want to imperatively touch the DOM, that's a side effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, So you should use watch only for these scenarios. Uh, So as a rule of thumb, updating other state inside a watch or callback is almost always a a bad idea.
0: Got it. Cool. So it makes sense. Yeah. The the watch stuff is pretty it was pretty interesting playing around with it. It felt a lot more verbose than like the old way. But at the same time, I totally understood how like there was no other API that was possible. (laughs) You know (laughs) what I mean? Like sometimes you can have like, you're passing in like two different inline callbacks and it can start to feel like a really big thing compared to just like your like, you know, food. A lot of the,
1: a lot of the cases you can actually get away with just a, a single function. For example you're trying to um, fetch some data based on the prop mm-hmm. you can literally just have a single function say fetch props.id
0: yeah
1: and do that uh the same function will just get rerun every time props change yeah so you don't have to say watch function return props.id then id then do all the other stuff
0: yeah yeah yeah. but what if you were like fetching something whenever something changed you needed to make an HTTP request to fetch something and then update some piece of local state based on like what was...
1: Well, if it's in a callback, it's asynchronous already. So it's yeah. not technically inside the watcher anymore. Okay. So it won't. So if it's inside an async callback, it won't be tracked by the watcher.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah. One thing that I was curious about, I guess, is it seems like a major difference between like hooks and views composition API is that the setup function is only called once. Whereas with React everything is called a million times um sometimes more often than that uh, if you have a bug in your code that causes chrome to crash which i've ran on too many times <laughs> oh wow <laughs> uh, with lots of infinite loops of like effects that like trigger themselves over and over again and probably like that but um so what are some of the important differences i guess because of that difference um and one thing in particular that i'm curious about is does that have an impact on why like Like in React with hooks, they try to like eliminate this like mental model of lifecycle hooks. Like they don't want you thinking about mounted versus updated versus all that stuff anymore. But with the view composition API, like those are still what's exposed to you. We don't have like like one single like use effect sort of um, comparable API. So are those related, and um, what can I learn from you about that?
1: Sure. Um, So some of the more obvious difference is that because we only run it once, so uh, you can do conditional uh, stuff. Uh, they're not subject to, not order sensitive. And say when you have a watcher callback, when you ha- have a lifecycle callback, um, you won't run right into the problems where it, the, the, the closure becomes stale because you forget to pass the correct dependencies. Um, because inside view watchers, dependencies are automatically collected, so they rerun whenever they should. Um, but in hooks, you, you would often run into the pr- situation where um, th- uh, this use state variable, when you use it inside a use effect callback, it, sometimes it's stale, sometimes it's not, depending on whether this callback is invalidated, uh, which depends on you pa- passing in the correct dependency array. Um, so you have to kind of rely on the lender to, to help you with that, which I think is a, is a major sort of Leak of underlying design to developer experience because I don't I just don't think you should force developers to manually manage the dependencies, um, and and I think the, the the I can sort of understand the reasoning why they try to force you to think in a effect cleanup sort of this uh, instead of a lifecycle um, because this is sort of preparing priming your mindset to for concurrent mode, where um, where effects, they want to have these effects more manageable. And also, the reason they are calling hooks on each render is so that on each render, you get a natural closure of the current state of this this render pass, so that it's much easier for them to say, like, do something in, in the background, revert to a snapshot, or uh, committing a snapshot. Um, so, it kind of ties into how concurrent mode works under the hood. Um, so, it's sort of like, honestly, like, I feel like this gets to a point where it actually hurts developer experience to some extent. And we'll have to see whether it's actually worth it. But uh, from Vue's side, because Composition API is caught only once, and because Vue is fundamentally built on top of the mutable model. Uh, and we're not uh, sort of convinced to go the full concurring mode route. so so we can sort of just leave those aside and just think about what's the API that makes most sense to get rid of as many of these issues as possible. Yeah, so, so like, um, the,
0: the one thing sure. that I guess like um the one thing that I see with like use effect that seems like compelling to me is this idea, first of all, all my experience with use effect has been, makes my brain hurt and I have a very hard time ever getting it to do what I want. And I consider myself to be a fairly intelligent person, but it has been hard. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But one thing about it that does seem like, yeah, this is kind of cool is the way that you, you return like the cleanup function and that avoids like that, bug you can run into where like you forget to clean up an event listener in on updated because like props have changed or something at least that's like what they talk about in react um that's probably a bug that's in like all my view code if that problem exists in view because i never really thought about it too much or at least it was never really problematic because the props didn't change but is that something that that we well, still have to think about now like if i, I mean we so far, do have a So if, say, in the
1: watcher, right, uh, in the watcher callback, your watcher callback actually receives a function called register cleanup, and then you can register a cleanup function directly inside your watcher. So you can do that similar, too. The reason we're not using the return value for it is because we actually allow async functions as your watcher callback. We also allow async functions in lifecycle hooks. So all of these... Uh, and the reason we allow async functions in there is because when you have some async error inside your async functions, we actually handle that error for you because we get the promise that you return. We all cache it, and if an error, async error happens in your async function, it gets propagated all the way to View's error handling system. So in React, because the return value is used up by the clean function, clean up function, so uh, if you directly pass an async function to use effect, it won't work. You'll have to declare a separate async function inside of it,
0: yeah, then yeah, call yeah, it.
1: But in order to do that, you you are responsible for handling all the possible async function, async errors yourself. You won't be able to rely on React's error handling yeah.
0: anymore. Yeah, I think like what I'm realizing here that is like the fundamental difference in a lot of ways is the sort of stuff that you, you do and that you're forced to do in use effect is often handled by watch and view anyways rather than by life cycle hooks exactly so you don't and and even the stuff that is like done in life cycle hooks you don't have to worry about like registering an event listener that has closed over some state that might change because views state is going to update and mutate anyways so like a lot of you don't have to replace those event listeners with new event listeners when the props change or something like that exactly yeah. And,
1: and for example in uh in use effect, when you pass an empty array, you know this thing is going to run once, so the logic inside of it it actually captures the initial state instead of yeah. the updated state, so you have to use a ref in those situations, yeah, which is I think is a major part where it makes people really hurt their brains yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, it gets hard for sure, yeah, <laughs> yeah, awesome um let me think if there's any other stuff I want to get into before before we start wrapping up. I noticed like looking at the API reference for the view composition API, it, it seems like something new is going on with like provide and inject in mm-hmm. view three. I'm curious yeah. like what has changed there because um, I know in view two provide inject was like a pretty interesting like pretty powerful feature, but was always kind of like kind of buried intentionally to avoid people. Relying on too much, or it was encouraged yeah. to like use this as in libraries. Don't use this in application code. But now in like React, context, which is like the closest thing that yeah. to provide inject, yep. is kind of like use context for everything now, um, and yep. that's where all your state should live. <laughs> you know, so I'm curious, like, yeah. um, what's provide inject look like in in Vue three? What are the recommended uh, use cases, and how has it changed?
1: Mm-hmm. So. Uh, the concept itself, how it works, really didn't change much. Uh, it's if a parent component provides something, all of its descendant components can inject it anywhere they want. It just the API actually feels much nicer in in Composition API, where it's just re- you import provide and inject. There are two functions in the parent component setup. You can say provide, give it a key, then you give it a value. Then in the child component, you just say const inject the value equals inject. Key. Uh, it's, it actually reads much more natural than the provide inject. I think the, the prime primary issue we have the with the 2.x inject API is you're always f- like trying to figure out is the left the key injected or is the right the key injected. Uh, and you have like inject from or something. Um, so it's it's a lot of micro syntax in the options. But with with the function uh, composition API, everything is just reads a lot more natural. Also, we are able to say if you're using TypeScript, when you provide something, you can use a typed symbol uh, as long as you extend our like the injection key type, and then you use that same injection key type to inject the stuff in your child component. You actually get the get the value of the injection inferred for you as well. So there's cool. uh, improved type safety there as well. Um so, I, know, uh, I know in Vue two picture.
0: like with provide inject things were like non reactive when they were provided using provide yep. inject by default. Is that still yep. uh, the case with View? Uh, through-
1: so in Vue V3- three uh, provided values are injected as is, if you want to make them in- reactive, you just inject a, a ref or version. a reactive object, and it just...
0: Yeah, that's yeah. so much nicer than what it was like in Vue 2, at least before like the yeah. observable API, because I would always have yeah. to like stick something on data and then like grab it off data, and yeah. it, it had my brain like thinking in like Angular yeah. 1 ways a lot of the time, where I was always worried about, like, okay, do I have to change the parent or the child? And yeah. you always have to have like some intermediary objects so you were... Never yeah. replacing it, always like mutating it so the reference wasn't exactly. lost and stuff like that. So,
1: yeah. And because the new inject API is so much nicer, um, uh, so if you, when you combine that with reactivity API, you can actually say, like, here's a class, it has some state, it has some methods. You instantiate the class, pass it to reactive, make it a reactive class instance, then you provide it from your root component. And then you can inject it anywhere inside your application, and this is sort of a poor man's Vuex
0: in yeah. some way, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, without having
1: to use a library at all.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and you and can it, just do in fact like, already, straight yeah. up
0: mutation now, and like yeah. if you don't want to buy into the whole like dispatching actions yeah. right. and if that stuff feels like a little much, you can still yeah. have this like really simple global store concept. So it does sound like it, it maybe is like a like like a context replacement in, in a lot of ways yep. and yep. and it's going to be easier to use it in that way than it was with uh with Vue 2 yeah very cool um okay well I mean I think we've been going for quite a while now so uh, I don't want to take up any more of your time um so maybe it's a good time to wrap up but what is the best place I guess for people to keep up with you keep up with Vue 3 news and do you have any information about like um when you're planning to to get this thing in people's hands
1: Sure. Uh, we're aiming for end of Q1 2020.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but that's a tentative line. Uh, but we're trying to get there. Uh, so if you want to keep up with uh, the latest, uh, so the definitive source of upcoming changes for V3 is our RFCs repo. Okay. You go to github slash vjs slash RFCs. Um, that's where we have all these formal proposals of what changes we're trying to bring in. Our reasoning behind it, and how you can adopt them once cool. they're released. Um, and uh, the source code is at Vue.js slash view dash, uh, Vue hyphen next. Mm-hmm. So um, that's where all the latest code is being committed to. So if you are interested in checking out the code or sending us a pull request, uh, you're welcome.
0: <laughs> so. Well, there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Evan. If you're interested in the show notes for this podcast, they will be at fullstackradio.com slash 129. Thanks to DigitalOcean and Cloudinary for sponsoring the podcast this week, and we'll see you next time.